Amen. You may be seated. That psalm is actually alluded to in this opening section of Hebrews. Um, we'll focus more on that in the, the next passage, but we are really going to stay in this first, uh, first long sentence in the Greek, which is verses 1 through 4, for a few more weeks. Um, so as you're turning there, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Athanasius has a, or recounts a, a story where Constantine Augustus and his sons wrote letters to St. Anthony, and they were seeking divine wisdom from him, just understanding, you know, what they should do and how they should act. And Anthony told his disciples, do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he is a man. Wonder rather that God wrote the law for man and has spoken to us through his own son. Just to emphasize the, that no man, no, no acknowledgement from any man compares to the fact that we have the very word of God through his son, Jesus. And that's that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. That's the theme of this opening section. That's the, what we will focus on uh, this morning. So the first coming of Jesus was the climax of redemptive history. It's what everything pointed forward to was the coming of Christ. And the return or second coming of Christ marks its culmination. Marks the culmination of redemptive history. So this, we've mentioned how this was kind of a hybrid sermon letter from... Uh, an anonymous author it generally opens, most letters open with a greeting, uh, mentioning who's writing and who, it's, who he's writing to. And so we don't have that in Hebrews. Hebrews jumps right in. It skips the preliminaries of a, of a letter to emphasize that very point, that God has spoken by his son. All right? it, it, if you received a letter and that's the first statement, instead of dear so-and-so, you know, and you, you, you immediately kind of know the context when you open a letter, who it's from. But if, if that's the first thing you have is God has spoken, boy, that's going to catch your attention. Right? That's, that's what's happening here. This author we know is at, at inspired by the Holy Spirit. He has uh, some close ties to apostolic, apostolic ministry. We've mentioned in the past uh, that many people have thought it was Paul for a number of reasons. I don't uh, think that's as convincing um, but there's not a really strong case to be made for anyone. Um, Apollos, I think, is an option, um, and, and there's others. But you have the author being primarily the Holy Spirit, right? God speaking to us uh, through the, the writing of a, a man who, right, who is inspired. Uh, and it's, he's writing specifically to Jewish Christians, now, we don't know precisely where they're located, but we have indicated based on the ending of, of Hebrews that it's most likely Rome, that it makes the most sense, it has the, the least problems. Um, if, if he's writing to Jewish Christians in Rome, probably a, a smaller group of them, smaller group of, of Christians in a house church. So there may be some Gentiles there because they're in Rome, but it's mostly Jewish Christians because of the language this author uses constantly referring to the Old Testament. He assumes their knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, and so he is making a case based upon the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, 
So God repeatedly sent the prophets. That's how the first verse opens, that God spoke by the prophets long ago or formally um, at, at many times and in many ways. And, and he, every time he sent a prophet, the prophets were rejected. The people did not appreciate what the prophets had to say. The prophets really were uh, what, what I've used in the past is they're, they're like covenant lawyers, right? They're recognizing where the people of God have gone out of line with the covenant that they have made with God, right? How they have uh, broken their covenant vows and promises. And so the people did not like to have their rebellious nature called out. And so they didn't like the prophets, and, many, and, and they would run them off, and they would, they would plug their ears and not listen to them, and some they killed. So Hebrews 11 will highlight them. When we get to Hebrews 11, it's this hall of faith, right, where, where the prophets are recognized and acknowledged uh, for their perseverance in the faith. But the result of this divine revelation to every generation was really a remnant of believers. There was always a remnant within Israel, right? Not all Israel is true Israel. There was always a, a smaller subset of Israel that truly believed, that acknowledged the word of the prophets, that responded to repentance and faith. And, and so the first thing I, I want us to recognize, and maybe as in just setting us in the right frame of mind and context of this original audience that is very consistent with our condition as well, natural man is incapable of rightly receiving God's word regardless of who the messenger is. That's an important point to recognize, that even if an angel comes from heaven, even if the Son of God comes down from heaven, that natural man is incapable of responding by, uh, to, to that rightly. Right? We must have our eyes opened. Our hearts must be softened to respond in obedience. Right? We would expect this audience of Jewish believers to be under tremendous pressure from their families to return to the practices of the Old Covenant, the things that they had always known, the things that had been passed on to them. Uh, by their ancestors. But according to Hebrews here, any Jew who rejects the Christian faith never rightly understood the Jewish faith. And that's, that's the point here, that, that the prophets have spoken God's word and they pointed forward to the Son and the Son brings fulfillment and finality to the word of God, to the revelation of God. And so in the midst of this heightened temptation within their context, their culture to, to compromise in their practice to, to return, to backslide, if you will, to an old practice that was outdated and expired, the author of Hebrews is now calling his readers to a deeper and a lasting response of faith because they have heard from his son. Right? Because they have heard from the son of God, their response requires a, a deeper and a lasting faith than, than what the, how the fathers typically responded. So it's, again, not to say that the prophets were speaking anything wrong or that, that what they said was inferior. It was still God's revelation, but it was in part. It was partially revealed, and yet it was consistently rejected. And so what we find in, in Hebrews is this, this, this acknowledgement here. There's, this is sort of implied by this opening section that he's, he's trying to raise up their response of faith so that they might express something that is lasting, right? that, something that is deeper, than what the typical um, response of the, of the Jewish audience exhibited in the Old Testament. So before we read this 
these opening verses, let's ask the Lord once again for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. And as we dig into this opening section once again, Lord, there is so much that we can focus on. And it's, it's so foundational to how we understand the rest of the letter. And so, Lord, help us to focus, even as our mind wants to wander to other things or think about uh, things that happened last week or things that were, are happening later on this week, even later today. Lord, we want to, to set all of that aside right now. We want our minds and our hearts to be focused solely upon you and your word, to hear from you. Lord, and so we recognize that apart from your spirit, we are incapable of understanding your word rightly. Lord, that our our nature is to reject your word. Our nature is to ignore it or to be indifferent toward it or to even be angry about it, as was so often the case recorded in the Old Testament. Lord, we want to have a different response. We want to have a response that is inspired and empowered by your spirit working in and through us. Lord, to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear this truth whatever that truth is that you have for us. Lord, you can convict each one of us. You can bring the comfort of the gospel. And all of us need both, Lord, to continue to persevere through the trials and tribulations that await us. Lord, we want to honor you in all things. And so speak to us now, Lord. Help us to to receive it, to hear it with joy. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe in the word of his power, or by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So one of the phrases that you might be thinking, you know, Brad hasn't mentioned anything about this yet, and I wonder if he's just going to pull one of those things that I've, when I, when I was a member of churches where you go, is the pastor going to talk about that one? Is he going to say anything about that phrase or that sentence or that verse? Um, and, and so oftentimes, unfortunately, pastors will avoid it. They'll, they'll, they'll skirt around the difficult and challenging issues or the ones that they know will be a little controversial, a little challenging. I want to talk about this phrase, the last days. What do we mean by these last days? It's, it's definitely an area where there is a uh, various views, right? Different understandings and interpretations. So let me begin by, by just laying out what I think, and then I want to talk about some of the alternatives and some of the problems to those alternatives. Um, the last days is an, is an idiomatic expression that you would find several times in the Old Testament, and especially the same exact phrase here in the Greek is found in the Septuagint in multiple places, like Numbers 24, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 49, Daniel 10. We'll refer to these last days. Uh, in, in your ESV, it's translated the latter days, but it's the exact same phrase there. 
uh, if you're reading from the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament. You know, the Hebrew, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek, but oftentimes you'll find language that is um, identical to the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this is most likely the, the, the source that the author of Hebrews is, is reading from, is reciting and, and oftentimes referring to. It's not always the case that it's identical to the Septuagint, but oftentimes it is. And so it implies really a, this Hellenistic view of, uh, or this Hellenistic audience and probably even a Hellenistic background to the author. But this, this phrase, the last days, had, a, had become an expression of eschatological anticipation. So as the Jews would, would read their Old Testament and, and gather together in the synagogue, they would hear that phrase and they would think of this latter days as being a time when the Messiah would come and fulfilled it. So the last days refers to this new covenant age, right? It's the, it's the, the age from Christ's resurrection until his return. It's all of it, right? That is the new covenant age or the gospel age. Um, some have called it the church age, but I would say the church stretches back into the Old Testament too. So I think it's, you could call it the gospel age or the new covenant age. But this language is similar to 1 Corinthians 10, Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, Hebrews 9. So you do find it throughout the New Testament referring to this same idea, the last days being a reference to Christ's coming from his first until his second. So the first thing I want to say is that uh, dispensationalists have the tendency to, to read this language whenever they see the last days, to read it as a reference solely to a very short period or, you know, as, as lengthy as maybe seven years, <clears throat> a, a period of time just prior to Christ's return. Okay, so there's a reference to the last days that it just immediately kind of default to understand this is talking about the future. Now, we might be entering into that or we might be getting close. Oftentimes, dispensationalists will look at the newspaper and they'll say, hey, there's a lot of activity happening. There's some war taking place. There's some, there's some things to be aware of because we might be on the verge of entering into these last days. Right? There's an idea that it's, all, it's always off in the future um, and and. The reason why it's important to anticipate it in, in the dispensationalist view is because right before it, in, it, we enter into that, we'll be raptured up as the church. So there's a little bit of this being ready for the rapture. Um, you can even go to the raptureindex.com and, and kind of understand the rating right now based on various things taking place. Um, so now not every dispensationalist would take that approach, so I don't want to belittle the, the entire position. And let me just say from the start here, there are some incredibly godly dispensationalists, just as there are incredibly godly amillennialists and postmillennialists and premillennialists. So we would not want to discredit this as if it's some kind of heresy uh, if we disagree with it. Um, but I do think that there are some challenges or problems to this. But let me just point out that John MacArthur who himself calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, um, he acknowledges that, th that it's this phrase in Hebrews, the last days, in this context, is a reference to the entire age between Christ's first and second coming. He acknowledges that. Right? He writes this, in the last days, promises would stop and fulfillments begin. The Old Testament age of promise ended when Jesus arrived. So he would acknowledge that this is the inauguration, right? Christ, in, uh, the incarnation of Christ is the inauguration of the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. 
Now, when you go to other passages, other, other areas of, of scripture, you will find him using that phrase, last days and latter days, not as a reference to the entire period, but as a reference exclusively to that period just prior to his return. So he would see the usage as, as he would say that it's, it's both, right? It can be a reference to the entire age, but it could also be just a reference to this future age. Now, I would argue that the normal scriptural usage of the phrase, the last days, is to speak of this gospel age between the first and second coming. Right? Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah were partially fulfilled in Christ's earthly life, death, and resurrection, and they will culminate upon his return. They find their final fulfillment, their completion in his return. But this does lead us now to the challenge of those who are on the, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, the eschatological spectrum here. John Owen held to a common view of partial preterism, which is also associated with a post-millennial view. Now, <clears throat> essentially, they will see the, la the vast majority of eschatological references in both the Old and New Testament as being fulfilled in AD 70. Right? The, the idea of preterism uh, comes from the Latin word praetor, which refers to, to, to past. It's something that has already passed in our time. Right? It, not that, the, that Hebrews was written after it. They would acknowledge that Hebrews was written before that, but they would say that it, it happened immediately after, basically, within the next few years, that most of the eschatological events that dispensationalists see as happening in the future, they would say that's already taken place. Now, again, they acknowledge that Christ's return and resurrection from the dead, they would say those are clearly future. Uh, the only alternative to that would be to deny that they, that they are going to happen, and, and that would be a heretical view, really. So if anyone said, I'm a full preterist, I'm a, I think every prophecy of the Old Testament has already been fulfilled, then they would be denying glory they would be denying Christ's return altogether they would say he had already returned and he's done his work entirely um, so most are would call themselves partial preterists but again almost everything else other than Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead they would say are have already taken place in AD 70 now so 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 the comparison here is instead of reserving the bulk of the end times events for a period just prior to Christ's return, they see those same events as having already taken place just prior to the destruction of the Jewish temple, including the destruction of the Jewish temple. So Matthew 24 would be a description of events that were going to take place just prior to or in AD 70. So according to Owen and most partial preterists, these last days specifically refer to the end of the Judaic church and state. And that's radically different from the dispensationalist view. They would say it's a, refer a reference to the end of the Judaic church and state. Um, he says that in the same, that he would use the, the, the same phrase here, the last days, he would say it's, it's also found as, elsewhere as the latter days or the last hour. He references 2 Peter 3.3, 3, 1 John 2.18, Jude 18. All of them, he would say, are a reference to the uh, end of the Judaic church and state, <clears throat> ultimately finding its fulfillment in the new covenant community made up of Jew and Gentile. All right, so Owen actually understands, and this, for, to understand this, you do have to get beyond his, his commentary of Hebrews, but when you go into his commentary on 2 Peter, 
uh, or some of his theological works, he references 2 Peter 3.13, and he would say that the last days is the age that's identical to the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so, so there's something significant to recognize here. He says this, on this foundation I affirm that the heavens and earth intended in the prophecy of Peter, the coming of the Lord, the day of judgment, and perdition of ungodly men, mentioned in the destruction of that heaven and earth, do all of them relate not to the last and final judgment of the world, but to that utter desolation and destruction that was to be made of the Judaical church and state. So the fiery persecution, the tribulation, according to him, many and many modern postmillennialists would say this has all been fulfilled in AD 70. And they would find references in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 as supporting this. So, here's my point. Ultimately, much like dispensationalism, this implies, as Owen has said explicitly there, this implies that the second coming of Christ is broken up into several segments with long gaps between them. Turn to Matthew 24 with me. I just want to show you this how this works, because Matthew 24 is clearly a reference to, it's an eschatological reference. Matthew 24 opens with this for Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple. He says, you see all these, do, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. We know that that happens in AD 70. And then he follows that up with this, or the, the disciples ask him a question in verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, what will be a sign of your coming? Well, he's already there. So obviously this is a reference of his re to his return. They're asking about his return. And then he goes in to describe the signs of the end of the age. All throughout Matthew 24, he'll say this in... Um, verse 27 again he'll he'll mention for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the son of man clearly a reference to his return and then in verse 42 therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your lord is coming okay so even though they would say he hasn't come in fullness there is a sense in which he had come in ad 70 there's no separating his second coming from the events that are described there in Matthew 24. And so if you say the vast majority of the events described here have already taken place, then you would have to admit that, that in some sense he, he came as well. The Son of Man came and partially fulfilled uh, his, the events of his second coming. So according to Owen and partial preterism generally, the events attached to the second coming were mostly fulfilled in AD 70 and will be consummated at the end of the age. For dispensationalists, the second coming is partially fulfilled at the rapture and then finally consummated with his return in judgment, right? He doesn't actually come all the way, but he meets us in the clouds and, and so we're raptured up and that's a part of his second coming. The problem with that is the second coming is then separated with gaps, in some cases with almost 2,000 years of a gap, and then in another, in another case, at least seven years of a gap. So Sam Waldron points this out. He says, here we come to the distinguishing feature of postmillennialism. 
To maintain its millennial hope for a golden age of necessity, it must conceive of the golden age or the period between Christ's first and second coming as divided into two distinct periods. The first period is the humiliation of the church. The second period is the triumph of the church. There is the time of the persecuted church and the time of the triumphant church. These are successive periods which characterize the gospel age. So that's really a, a summary of the postmillennial view. The, the distinguishing feature of postmillennialism, he says, is this idea of a golden age, an age in which the majority, the vast majority of the world in every nation is converted to Christianity. Now that's going to have a tremendous impact upon the morality of our, of our world, right, especially of our nations, if the vast majority are converted to Christianity. In what sense would there then be persecution leading all the way up to the, the return of Christ? There is a sense in which a lot of even the return of Christ would have to have been fulfilled in AD 70 for something like that to take place. Um, here's what you find, though, in Scripture. When you take the analogy of Scripture, the, the, the two distinct eras within the gospel age, there, or instead of two distinct eras within the gospel age, you find this age and that age. That's, that's the language of Luke 20, Matthew 12, Ephesians 1.21 speaks of this present age being marked by evil. And all of these, I have several references. So if you're interested in doing your own homework on this, you can look at the notes on the website later or, or come up to me afterwards. But I just want to summarize this as we're nearing the end. But it, there's this present age, which is marked by evil, and that future age, which is marked by righteousness. This present age involves death, and that future age begins with resurrection. This present age has an expiration date, while that future age is eternal. The Bible contains encouragement for the church to persevere through the persecution of this present age, because when Christ returns, he will usher us into that future age. That's, that's the repeated theme of the eschatological language that we find. There's a present evil and a future glory where sin and death are eliminated. And so this is at odds with a view that there would be a golden age on earth prior to Christ's second coming, prior to his return. I call myself an optimistic amillennialist, and in that sense, there, I'm optimistic about the church throughout this present age. We can be surrounded, we can be in the midst of evil, as we see in every generation, and yet we can still thrive. The church can grow. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. All of those promises are still true. The church will remain the church in every generation. There will always be a remnant. But that remnant language does not all of a sudden turn into majority language anywhere in Scripture until you get to his second coming, right? Until you get to his return where he separates finally the wheat from the tares. And then the... the, the the new heavens and new earth are, are ushered in, and we all believers gather together without sin, without sinners present. Again, so this is at odds, I think, with that golden age of, of postmillennialism. It, it does seem clear to me which one is more consistent with the testimony of Scripture, but many um, modern postmillennialists would argue that the gospel age is not like separated between two distinct eras, 
right? It's not like there's, um, there's going to be just a day where we all of a sudden enter into the, that second stage or that second phase where, where it's like, you know, one day we're, we're in the, um, the, the time of humiliation and then all of a sudden we walk into the next day uh, being in this golden era. They would see it as a, pro a progression, a slow progression. In fact, oftentimes it's described in the same language as our own personal sanctification. I said there's this progress and growth of the church so that it is beginning to fill and impact the entire world and every space and sphere of the world. Now, regardless, nothing like the golden age, even if you don't say there's two distinct eras, even if you say it's a, it's a, prog a progression, nothing like the golden age has at this point taken place. Nothing really close to it. Uh, that has been a global movement of the of the church, uh, but the assumption is that it would be that that it would we would enter into a golden age if the majority of the population were converted. How could you not? <clears throat> and then, as I said, if that were to take place, in what sense would these warnings of apostasy, would these warnings of ongoing persecution and tribulation? In what sense would they apply? Well, that's why it's all most of that has to have already happened. They would say it doesn't really apply, not in any, not in any genuine sense that, that we're still worried about. So let me clarify and close with this. There is an already and not yet. This sort of means that there's, a, there's some truth to all of it, right? To all, all of the views have verses that they can point to and reference and say, see, there's, there's some fulfillment of prophecy in that first generation. Um, so this already not yet language, we'll see this in Hebrews chapter six, that this idea that we, we taste, that, that there are people who are in the covenant community who will taste the future age, even though they do not have genuine salvation. They will have a taste of that future age in this present. Hebrews 6, five speaks of that. But when we think of this fulfillment of prophecy, we ultimately think and fundamentally of an eternal enjoyment of those things, not of an earthly enjoyment until we enter into the new heavens and new earth. So the church will experience remarkable growth despite the ongoing presence of evil and persecution. The wheat are growing up alongside the tares, but the wheat and the tares will continue to grow until the harvest. Jesus makes that clear when Christ will fully and finally purify his field. There's no, no sense in, uh, there's no reference to a, a, an increasingly pure field. Um, this means that the, the warning passages that we'll find in Hebrews, another strong theme in Hebrews is this warning to the covenant community. These are not merely hypothetical concerns for people that are not actually in the covenant. They're warnings to a covenant community made up of people who may be false, falsely converted. So that's not a hypothetical concern, but neither are, there merely, are they only and merely relevant to the first century community of Jewish believers, as preterists would, would have to assume, that most of this has already taken place, that it was preparing that first century church. And so if there's any relevance for us, it's merely as, a, as you might understand a story that's already pass and expired in its application. So the implications of this passage 
should strike us in the same way that they strike the original audience. And we remain in the same period of redemptive history between Christ's first and second coming. When scripture refers to 2,000 years of history as the last days, that should not diminish our expectation of his return. It didn't tell us that it would be that long, but every generation had an expectation that it could be their generation, right, that Christ returns in. So it shouldn't diminish our expectation of his return. Rather, it should maximize our appreciation of the possibility of that future event in every age. It should deepen our desire to understand and know and to persevere. So let us learn from Christ's urgency. Let us serve him with wisdom and faithfulness. We don't know when he will return. He tells us that in Matthew 24, 44, but we must always be ready. So if indeed God has spoken to us by his son, then we ought to listen. That's the, the fundamental point that I want to make this morning. That means we pray for ears to hear the truth. We proclaim uh, the truth that he proclaimed and for hearts that are softened to respond appropriately to everything that we hear. This is only possible when we join the hearing of God's word with a genuine faith. So the result is not a panic-filled service, but a restful enjoyment to be seated at the feet of Christ, to hear from our Savior, to rest in the truth that he's proclaimed, the promises that he has fulfilled on our behalf. And if indeed these are the last days in which the full gospel message is being proclaimed, then we ought to take advantage of the privilege we have to share in the work of the ministry. As we see in the Great Commission, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So why why can we be confident in the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Because of that last promise, that Christ will be with us even to the end to the very end when he returns and once again is physically present on this earth. Because Christ is always with us to the end of the age, we recognize that until that day, until the Lord of the harvest returns, he will continue to provide the growth that we need. As the church, 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So there's both a corporate element in the Great Commission being given to the church, and then there's a personal, a very practical and personal promise given to you that he will increase the harvest of your righteousness as you understand what he is up to in these last days. So let us give him the praise and glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for just this, this ongoing opportunity to, to consider a foundational letter. As R.C. Sproul said, if he was on a deserted island, the one book he would want is the Bible, and if he could only choose one book out of the Bible, he would choose Hebrews. 
there's so much depth and, and meat here for us to chew on. And Lord, even if we spent the rest of our lives in this book, we would not plumb its depths. And so we want to meditate upon these things. We want to meditate upon the, the truth that's being proclaimed here and to recognize that you have spoken to us by your Son. And it is as we receive those words by faith or with faith, Lord, that we are strengthened, uh, that we can understand it and apply it in a way that is faithful to your intentions, Lord. Help us not to become indifferent to your word, especially as we remain in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution. And we should expect that persecution to continue. Lord, we want to be faithful to you in light of that and boldly react, boldly respond when our faith is being attacked and challenged. Even willing to give our lives for the truth of the gospel, Lord, as so many martyrs have done. That it's been the seed of the church, the blood of the martyrs. So, Lord, we are grateful for a message that, would, that we would be willing to die for. And if that's true, then, Lord, our lives should be given over to centering around this truth, that the gospel would be at the center of our marriages and our homes and of our daily living. Help us to honor you. And as we wrestle with the technical aspects of the end times and thinking about eschatology, Lord, there's differences of opinion even within this room, but, Lord, we want to acknowledge that ultimately you are in control and that you are sovereign and that you are going to bring about the culmination of all of this in your perfect timing. Help us to be prepared for that. Help us to be ready. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. This is a new one for us. Um, I believe it's a Getty. Yeah, it's a It's a Getty song. We'll sing When Trials Come. You'll find the, music, the, the lyrics in your song insert. And so we'll have Mark sing through the first verse before we join in, and he'll, he'll repeat it. 